Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 20th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, May 26. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. You're listening to this on May 31, which means that tomorrow is the first day of June, LGBTQ Pride Month. So it's very fitting that my guest is a leading voice in the LGBTQ community. Alejandra Caraballo, a lawyer, academic, and transgender rights activist. She's a clinical instructor at Harvard Law School, where she and Anya Marino are the first transgender women of color to teach at HLS. Prior to entering academia, Alejandra worked as a lawyer at both the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund and the LGBTQ Law Project at the New York Legal Assistance Group. I first learned about Alejandra on Twitter, where she and I have had some disagreements about free speech controversies at law schools. So we definitely don't agree on everything. But as I like to tell people, I often learn more from talking to people I disagree with than people I agree with. So in our conversation, in addition to covering her interesting personal and professional history, we tackled some controversial and sensitive subjects, including trans athletes participating in girls and women's sports and children and teens receiving gender-affirming care. Without further ado, here's my interview of Alejandra Caraballo. Alejandra, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I guess let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your childhood, your upbringing. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I was born and raised in Tampa, Florida. I'm an only child. Both my parents are from this super small town in Puerto Rico called Sidra, Puerto Rico. But they didn't actually meet there. They met in Rochester. And they eventually ended up in Tampa, where I was born and raised. I kind of grew up in this, like, at the time, the boonies, because it was, like, very rural. There was nothing but, like, orange groves and strawberry fields. It's kind of like close to Plant City, which like I guarantee you, if you probably look at most of your produce, like tomatoes and stuff like that, it'll probably say like Plant City, Florida. Huh. <laughs> yes. So it's like just kind of a very rural part of Tampa. And yeah, I know, it was fairly okay. Like my mom, when she was growing up, went to like a Catholic school. So she essentially thought, you know, you should also go to a private religious school because she just thought like they were better. But she went to like a Catholic school in like New York where it's a little bit better regulated than the kind of Wild West that is in Florida. And so I went to this like school called Central Baptist Christian School, which is this like, what did I say? It was like basically a Southern Baptist. Your religious background, were you raised Catholic or Baptist or something else? So I went to a Baptist school, but I was raised Catholic. Okay. I went okay. to confirmation, all of those things. And what did your parents do? My mom started working in insurance and working in accounting. And my dad worked his way up at a fence manufacturing plant and ended up becoming a supervisor there until he was severely disabled on the job and actually lost his left arm in a work accident. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's horrific. Roughly how old were you when that happened? This is 2005. So I was 14. Yeah. Like the aftermath of that is kind of what kind of kicked off my interest in the law because that was like my first experience with lawyers was our workers' comp attorney. And just seeing, like, the way that the systems are stacked and, like, the power of the law and everything like that. Tell me a little bit more about how the workers' comp experience affected your move into the legal sphere. Was it a positive experience or was it a negative one? Did the lawyers help your father and your family or was it a negative experience? I think it was a little bit complex. I think it was kind of my first introduction to being cynical about the law because the reforms around workers' comp were all business-friendly, right? They're all friendly towards the employer, and they set all these kinds of caps and all these other things and force you through this process. The leverage is given so much to the employers, and, you know, my dad purposely was, like, being paid hourly because he would work, like, 60 hours a week, so he'd get, like, 20 hours of overtime. But, like, 
right after the accident, like he only got 80% of his base pay, which obviously didn't include his overtime. So it was like more realistically like half. And my family was definitely like struggling very much throughout time. And like one of the underhanded tactics that they would do is like, oh, we sent out your check because they didn't do a direct deposit, right? They would only send out checks and they'd like send out the check and they're like, oh, we sent it. And it's like two or three weeks later. And I was like, well, we didn't get it. And they're like, oh, well, we'll send it. It's like two weeks later. And they're like, we sent it out again. And then my mom would get on the phone with the attorney and the attorney would like either send a letter or like get on the phone with them. And then magically two or three days later, the check was in the, and it's like post stamped like the day the attorney called. <laughs> so that was like kind of my, you know, that like the power of like having legal representation is like people tend to take that more seriously. And so I was like really able to see like how that was done. But now I guess I have more appreciation, or I guess understanding of it, but it felt like because our attorney had done so much workers comp claims, like he was very friendly with like the workers comp attorneys at like for the employer and like they're very chummy. And I guess like when you're dealing with this and this is like such a terrible situation, that was like mostly the fault of the company. And like your attorney is really friendly with the like other, you know, it's like, it doesn't feel great. Mm. But then like on the other side, now that I've like practiced law and have been in like contentious litigation, I can understand having, you know, cordial relationships with opposing counsel because mm -hmm. you don't want things to be acrimonious. But oftentimes clients want you to be like fighting tooth and nail when oftentimes that can be actually counterproductive. And especially, I would think, in a practice area like workers' comp where there are repeat players and so they know they're going to be seeing each other again and maybe the chummy relationship helped get those checks out faster. I don't know, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. And it can oftentimes, like, speed up mediation or, like, they also know kind of ballpark where things are going to, like, they have mm -hmm. a better sense of, like, where things are going to be. Yep. So by the time you went to college in the wake of this experience... Did you already have a sense that you wanted to go into law or were you thinking of some other fields? No, it was interesting. So I went to a magnet school. I went to Tampa Bay Tech in high school and I actually got like a certification in architectural drafting. Hmm. My plan was to go do drafting part-time to like help pay for college because when I was making these plans, I was like 2006, 2007, like you could make easily 15 to $20 an hour doing architectural drafting, hmm. like using AutoCAD or like other kinds of the software. And I was like, that was really good money then. And I was like, I could do that straight out of high school. But unfortunately, I graduated in 2008, Ooh. which like was right in the middle of the housing bust. So like that was dead in the water. So I had done really well. I really loved my AP bio class. And I decided like, I really wanted to like major in biochemistry. And I ended up major in biochemistry in undergrad. And then 2008 was also like the Obama election. I ended up interning on the, like the Florida part of the campaign. And it was like one of the best experiences I've ever had. And my advisor was like seeing me like get A's in all of my government courses and just getting like B's like in chemistry and was like, you know, you seem to be like way more interested in law, policy and government. And so at her urging, I switched to a dual major in government, world affairs and chemistry you know, I originally I wanted to go to med school. Like hmm. I was studying for the MCAT and then I changed and started studying for the LSAT. Yeah. And so like that was kind of a the bit of a change. I think it was like my advisor recognizing like what my actual passions were. That's interesting. Sometimes it takes an outside pair of eyes to sort of figure these things out. And it sounds like you had a good mentor or advisor in this person. And when you got to Brooklyn Law, what were you thinking about your future career in law school? So when I got to Brooklyn Law, I still was unsure. I was like one of those that relatively went straight through. I you know, worked for a little bit as an accounts payable at this like small business that owned a bunch of UPS stores in Florida. And I was like, kind of sure. I like, I just didn't really know. Cause like, to be honest, like other than like our workers comp attorney and like one of my mom's cousins, like husband, like I, I never really knew like any attorneys. I like kind of look back now and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like going into a profession where I literally didn't know anyone from the profession. Hmm. My mom eventually went back and got her degree because when she had me, she had to drop out of college. But I was kind of the first I'd go straight through and graduate. And like, you know, I was the first in all of my family to like go to graduate school. So mm -hmm. that was like 
huge and I didn't know what to expect. I was coming from a relative hard science background, some social science and like government, but it was kind of brutal. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I had like one of the worst 1L like years ever. Like I moved to New York, never lived outside of Florida. And I just was like hit with seasonal depression, like Mm. all of the culture shock, yeah, all of it and definitely struggled. And I really didn't figure out what I wanted to do. And I ended up having to take like where most people would be doing stuff on 1L summer. I ended up taking that off and working on music. Huh. I don't know. Like I just needed to recover from like everything that I'd just gone through the 1L year. And so I was like playing venues at like Webster Hall in New York and like Melrose Ballroom and like a few like Space Ibiza and like a few different places. Like started getting like label interest from some like EDM labels in like Europe and because I had like a music partner, we did like this duo. It was kind of like Cruella at the time or like the um, yeah, others. And I, know, I was also doing like sound design and music production for off-Broadway. I know this is like a complete this like left cool, field huh? thing. <laughs> I was doing like sound design for like off-Broadway like productions and stuff like that, like as a side hustle. And I thought maybe I wanted to go into like music entertainment law. And then okay. like, I just remember like having a meeting with my advisor in law school and she just straight up was like, do you want to have a job after law school? And was like, she literally encouraged me to drop out. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. She's like, you didn't do it. You didn't even intern your 1L. Like you like are just doing average. Like, and I walked out of there like, what just happened? So at that point, is when I was like, you know what, maybe I should like look into public interest. And I got into the asylum law clinic. And that clinic really kind of changed my life, like opened my eyes to like what was possible. And I, you know, worked with asylum seekers. And then the following semester, I worked with the Help Elder Law Clinic, which was like 99% housing. So it was like just like Brooklyn Housing Court. Okay. And so I did that for a semester. And again, like I just, I fell in love with work and I really loved doing direct legal services work. And that's when I would like fully change my path. I stopped kind of doing music as much, like my musical act kind of fell apart and I kind of committed full time to going to public interest. And, you know, I still didn't have a job lined up after I graduated. So I was like a little panicky. What did you do your 2L summer? My 2L summer, I just took more classes. I didn't actually intern. Okay. You had all the work experience through the clinic. So you were saying, so by graduation, you did not yet have a job lined up. It's funny because, you know, I still have students that I teach at Harvard that like, oh, what, well, like, what did you do? Like, what did you recommend? And I was like, don't do what I did. <laughs> but it was interesting because like during the summer after I graduated, I was like when I came out as trans. And oh, okay. I was even more terrified because it's like, oh, I don't have a job, but I'm also coming out as trans. And like, you know, is anyone going to hire me, like, or anything? And my other career advisor, who I'd switched to, who's like the public interest career advisor, was like, hey, there's this fellowship at New York Legal Assistance Group that is open. You should apply because it was immigration heavy. They needed someone who's bilingual and spoke Spanish. And, you know, I was relatively newly out. And I applied. And after, I think, like a month, like several interviews and a whole like process, like I got the fellowship. And that's like what really kind of kickstarted my career. And I ended up working primarily with trans Latina women from Central America seeking asylum. Oh, this is a perfect fit. You were like their ideal candidate. (laughs) Yeah. All the stars kind of aligned. And I realized like how like rare that really was. And like, that was the work that I fell in love with. And I was like kind of rediscovering my own Latina identity because like, I grew up like kind of a punk. Like I was into skateboarding mm-hmm. and hardcore music and playing guitar, like all those things. And like a kind of a bit of the black sheep of the family because all my cousins were like, like, why do you listen to that rock music? Like all that <laughs> stuff. And it's like, you know, but like I really like was able to kind of really rediscover my Latina identity through the work that I was doing because I was like speaking Spanish every single day. And like, working with the community and like really like getting pride in that and like also discovering myself like as a trans person. And so it was an eye-opening like experience, but it also like sticks with me because the work-life balance is so different from like the rest of the profession, right? Like, yeah, it would be a strange day if I got an email past 5.30 p.m. The office was Mm. a ghost town pretty much by 5.30. And so the work was really intense, right? Like I was working with 
some of the most like horrific stories. And I had to like interview clients and like put this together into affidavits, like people who were like severely beaten, trafficked, like sexually abused, like all of these things. Like, you know, it's just, it was a very intense job, but the fortunate aspect is like, you know, you can go home at like 5.30 and like, you know, you can have a social life, you know, whereas like all my friends who went into big law were like, they disappeared. Yep. So, but it sticks with me because like, it's one of the things I always kind of stress to people is like having a good work-life balance because mm-hmm. there is life outside of the law. Absolutely. <laughs> so connect us now from your time at NILAG to your current role at HLS. What did you do in between? Yeah, so I went and worked at the Transgender Legal Defense Education Fund for two years doing impact litigation, particularly around trans health. I was of counsel on multiple cases dealing with access to gender-affirming care. So we had lawsuits in North Carolina, KDAL v. Fullwell, which was an exclusion for North Carolina employees and their kids and family from accessing gender-affirming care. We had a lawsuit against Houston County, Georgia, which had an exclusion in its plan And we represented Anna Lang, who was a deputy there. And then we also sued the Trump administration for rolling back the Section 1557 rules and also did a lot of regulatory comments. So it was like really moving from that, like direct legal services, having 30 clients or so roughly and a ton of cases to just kind of having three cases where it's like, that's all I did because it was just a ton of litigation, motion practice, all of those things. and. Like, I started in November of 2019, and, like, literally, what, four months later is when COVID hit. So, like, it ended up being a completely different job than what I had envisioned, like, working Mm. from home. And the kind of iron wall that I had separating my home life from work life just dissolved. Um, And so, yeah, I got extremely burnt out. It was, like, not great. And by, like, early 2021, I was, like, you know, having to take medical leave. And I was just like extremely burnt out the situation. Like, because I mean, I was living in Brooklyn, like during the worst of the pandemic. And like, this was traumatic for like a few weeks straight. Like I had just nonstop ambulances going by. And like, I saw the trucks that were refrigerated that were holding like the corpses of people who had died from COVID. It was just absolutely terrifying. And one of my kind of mentors, Lorena Borjas, who I'd worked with for three years at NILAG, she brought all my clients to me. Like she was like this absolute force within the trans Latino community in Queens. She passed away in March of 2020 from COVID. And so like, it was just a deeply traumatic time and I was like still processing like everything. And I ended up like realizing I didn't think it was sustainable for me to stay at Tildaf. And my friends recommended, because this kind of ties in, like I did electronic music, but I'm like a big tech nerd. So they were like, look, you have like all of this like understanding of technology and also you know when I initially started at Brooklyn Law I actually concentrated in IP and media law so I had some substantive background and they were like you're a perfect fit so I applied and it went through and I started at the clinic and it was absolutely wonderful it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. So tell us about your work at the clinic. You know pretty much we focus on the intersection of law and technology which is fairly vague but that gives us a lot of discretion, you know, at the cyber law clinic to be able to work on various areas. And since we're like the largest clinic or one of the largest clinics at the law school, we have six instructors. And because of that, if we're all just doing IP and like the same kind of privacy stuff, it would get really boring really quickly. So having six of us allows us to kind of go into more niche mm-hmm. areas. So I've kind of focused on gender and technology issues. So what I do there is basically like I usually take on a set of students every semester and we work on real cases with real clients and basically teach them the practice of law. And so, you know, we've worked with reproductive rights groups around issues of reproductive access online and telemedicine. We filed a amicus brief last year in support of Felicia Sanmez, a journalist at Washington Post who was fired, but this lawsuit actually predated that, was discriminated against on the basis of gender and status as a sexual assault survivor. And, you know, one of the things we were trying to highlight is like that kind of online abusive environment for female journalists. And 
So we could focus on these different areas. I also, we were like an amicus in Apple v. Corellium for privacy researchers to be able to have fair use reproductions of operating systems for security research. So yeah, like it's kind of all over the board, but like really since Dobbs, it's been a lot of focus on reproductive rights access Mm -hmm. and things like that. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And don't forget to follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future Original Jurisdiction guests. Looking back at your career from Nilag to Tildef to now, is there any particular matter, representation, issue where you've done work that you're the most proud of? Is there something that you really hold close to your heart? Yeah, I guess like, you know, in our capitalistic society, you're like always taught to think that numbers are better, right? Like helping more people is better than just helping one person. So quantity over quality. And I think in a lot of ways for me, it's the opposite. You know, I've had both worlds where I did direct legal services. I was working directly with clients and then the kind of more impact side where it's like very broad and helps like a broad set of people. And one of the things I think I'm the most proud of is the times that I've been able to win my clients' asylum cases. I had a few clients that I won asylum for. And like, I know forever, like I've changed their life. Like I was able to get them on a path that they could finally have stability. And, you know, additionally, like as small as it was, like legal name changes for trans folks. I don't think I've ever had more grateful clients than like when, you know, they were just, it'd be a celebration when their names were like legally changed. And so sometimes like just even the smallest things are like the most rewarding, even though like oftentimes like I've done other things that like are far more impactful on a broader scale, like for the Mm -hmm. number of people, it's just like the kind of immediate connection to someone that I know like I've helped in this way, I think is more important to me. But at the same time, like one of the reasons why I was kind of leaving NILAG and was looking for less like intense client-facing work was like, there's a dark side to that, right? Because when you do lose a case or, you know, something bad happens, it really affects you. Like my last two days at Nylag, I had a family court trial over custody for a non-bio mom who was in a same-sex relationship with another woman. And like, we just had this homophobic judge who like, found no parental relationship, even though like one of the children had my client's last name on their birth certificate. Wow. They had tat- tattooed engagement rings, which I got like on the, like it was one of those like TV moments. They're like, can you hold <laughs> your hand up for the court? Wow. Like during the trial and it just was so stacked and like knowing that like my client was probably not going to see their kids again, like broke me. Like I had a wow. panic attack. I didn't sleep for weeks. Like, wow. and that was like, yeah. And yeah, that's like the dark side of that. And mm-hmm. so it's much more intense in that way. But at the same time, like the stakes feel like more existentially higher when you do impact work, because it's like, if you mess that up, like you're messing a lot of, like you might not know the name of the people that's going to affect, but you just know it's going to happen. And I felt like I, I definitely sometimes had more difficulty managing that as well mm. on the impact side. So if you had to give advice to public interest law students or young lawyers about whether they should go the direct services route or the impact litigation route or the policy route? How can a person tell what they're best suited for? What would you advise them to think about? What considerations? One of the things I would tell students that are like interested in public interest is I kind of do the same thing about like, you know, quantity versus quality. Like I think like you can make more of a difference in one person's life. Like, and it sometimes is more meaningful. But I think also I think every public interest interested law student or someone who wants to go work in public interest should do some type of direct legal services work at some point, whether that's a law school clinic or a year fellowship or something similar. I highly recommend it because I think what it is the most instructive in is the two types of legal systems that we have. And, you know, when I started law school, we did our convocation or commencement or whatever the first like when we start law school in the Eastern District of New York's courthouse. And it's this ornate, like old money looking like courthouse with all these like portraits and all that. And like, like, oh, this is what the law is. And then when I was doing Brooklyn Housing Court and it was like 
dozens of people in a very hot, sweaty hallway just yelling and people trying to find and I was like seeing like like no that's actually what the law is like mm-hmm. that's what everyday people experience and I think it really can be humbling and then also ground people because I think if you go straight into federal litigation or federal policy work like it just is so like at this elevated level like you're not operating in a plane where like it relates to typical people like literally just trying to stay in their homes and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good perspective to have. And the same thing with like family court or housing court or even immigration court, all of those things. And I think it can really grant you perspective. You know, that being said, like, I kind of a bit pessimistic or cynical about impact work, at least as the model as we know, like the ACLU type litigation as like being the kind of major force for change. For the next few decades, like if you want to be some kind of rock star lawyer going and litigating all these major cases, just know that like it's unlikely to be as successful. It's not really going to be because of the way the courts have been irrevocably changed. But I think also in, in a lot of ways, the kind of system or model where we've place so much emphasis on civil rights attorneys to be the backstop for civil rights Mm -hmm. has kind of gutted a generation of civil rights leaders because instead of having people organizing, forming mutual aid networks, getting like people in the streets, we've just said, oh, they say you'll handle it. They'll file a lawsuit. Mm. It'll be enjoined. And I think that's not how like the civil rights movement was one like it's not how like this happened right like when Thurgood Marshall was litigating with the NAACP and Brown v. Board and like in the 50s you also had Martin Luther King right and then you know on the more like militant side you also have like Malcolm X right like it took all of that it took mm-hmm. everyone acting in concert there was no one person I think we like to be reductive and like the great man theory of history kind sure. of thing and I'm like the more I've done this work, the more I realize it's never about one person. It's about a movement. And so I think in that way, I think I would encourage people more to think if you want to do impactful change, like you don't need to be in a courtroom to do it. Oh, OK. Interesting. So looking at the policy issues or turning to that, just big picture, where would you say we are in terms of trans rights in the United States? On the one hand, there's more visibility, there's more focus, and there have been some positive developments since we were kids or what have you. But on the other hand, there are also a lot of really distressing things in the news. So where would you say we are? Yeah, we're in a period of reactionary backlash, like immense reactionary backlash. And this is not unprecedented. I try to tell people, like, when you know the history, this is not new, right? Anytime there's an advancement of civil rights for a group, there's almost always an inevitable backlash. Whether it was the civil rights movement making huge gains in the 50s and 60s and then kind of plateauing in the 70s and then like the 80s just being this like really regressive time frame for African Americans, but also for women who made a lot of gains in the 70s. And then we kind of got the Reagan years where like a lot of pushback against feminism, a lot of pushback against civil rights. But it was also similar with the LGBTQ movement, right? There was a lot of wins in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Like there was starting to be these broader acceptance of LGBTQ people. There was more formal organizing, this understanding of identity. You know, I think like Anita Bryant in Florida was kind of like this harbinger of like in 1977 of what was building, right? They got protections in Miami and she ran this whole campaign about, you know, quote unquote, protect the children. But it's similar with trans folks, especially with trans folks. Johns Hopkins had a gender identity clinic in 1960, that opened in 1963, I believe, and was kind of operating on a low-key basis for a few years. And then like 1967, it was like the New York Times broke the story. Yeah, and so like there was, like this was all going on in the background. And so like there was like access, I don't want to say it was great. There was so much gatekeeping, but it's like really weird like reading some of the articles from 1970s and New York Times about trans people because it's all the same stuff. Like they were like, Regret rates are low, but like people are concerned whether this is the best course. Huh. It's to go through the New York Times archive and like type up transsexual and like see what the articles were written in the 70s. And it's like remarkable how similar some of them are. And by 1979, Paul McHugh kind of at the head of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins shut down the clinic because he's very bigoted. 
he later was like opposing same-sex marriage and marriage hmm. equality and served as an expert. And he helped shut it down. By 1982, the Reagan administration had issued a report for like a notice of coverage determination for Met Centers and Medicaid Medicare Services, basically saying that this care was experimental. And with Johns Hopkins shutting down, within three short years, you had like over 100 plus clinics around the country. You went down to about a dozen, huh. about three short wow. years. And it took 34 years to basically recover from that. You know, through the 90s and 2000s, like care was basically all out of pocket. Like no one would cover it. You know, they're like, oh, there isn't research. And it's like, there wasn't research because they just declared it experimental. So nobody would research it. Mm. Nobody would get it covered because there's no research. And okay. then no one could research it because it wasn't covered. Like, there's this like mm-hmm. catch 22 cycle. And so there was this backlash. And there was even like the kind of gender critical, like, you know, Janice Raymond, 1979. Like, 1979 is like the real pivotal year. And, you know, she wrote Transsexual Empire basically from like this radical feminist lens, like opposing trans rights. And, you know, at the same time, she was allying with the far right to, like, limit recognition of trans people. And mm. so everything that happens is not new. And mm-hmm. this is similar. So, like, all the strides and gains, like, there was actually a case in 1977 that got Aetna to cover gender-affirming surgery huh. in New York. Like, there were tangible wins being made and, like, progress. And it just kind of all backslid with the kind of this broader backlash to the civil rights mm. with Reagan. And... So I think it's more intense now. I think it's also more visible because of social media. And in a lot of ways, it can be like harnessed in in very acute ways. But I think like this is a blip. I do think like this is going to fade. I think these people are obviously on the losing side of history, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer a lot of setbacks and damage along the way. And I think a lot of people are going to be hurt. I think we're going to lose a lot of people, Mm. frankly. Like, yeah the kinds of laws, the kinds of ways that they're making it impossible to exist openly as the transport, let alone, like, we're now saying, like, broader just attacks on LGBT people entirely, right? And it is, like, scary how quickly things have escalated in the last, particularly in the last year, but just the last two years. And looking at this backlash that you're describing, what do you see as the most serious threat to the trans community right now? I think the biggest threat is... LGBTQ allies not taking this kind of fascist threat seriously. And I say that because let's like, you know, as we're recording this right now, there's this whole thing with Target and we just like two months ago had the whole thing with Bud Light. Yes. And I think people are shocked at this and like not understanding. And it's like, I've been tracking this for the last year. Like, and I think part of it is the media has done a just absolutely horrific job of covering this in the context that needs to be covered. Like, for example, last year in Keele, Wisconsin, there was a trans kid in high school there who was getting bullied. They file a complaint, a Title IX complaint for the harassment, for sex-based harassment. And the students who were accused of bullying immediately get lawyered up by this conservative legal firm, Will, Wisconsin Institute for Liberty or Law and Liberty or something like that. Libs of TikTok tweets about it. The parents get on Fox News and they like severely destroy everything. Obviously, we don't know even the identity of the trans kid. Like they never get a voice in this. And all of a sudden the bomb threats started. Mm. This town in Wisconsin, this so the school started getting bomb threats, right? Wow. For like days and days. Eventually the school just closes early for the semester because this was happening in May, exactly about a year ago. They closed down the school for in-person learning, moved to remote. So the bomb threats then shifted to municipal buildings. It went to the mayor's, like to all the municipal buildings around Keele, Wisconsin. And no national media was covering this. It was just like, mm. like a reign of terror against this town, right? And eventually after about three or four weeks of this, the school drops the Title IX investigation. They cave, right? They acquiesce to terrorism. Mm. And no national media covered this. The first national paper to cover this was Washington Post in an opinion column by George Will, who said, when the pronoun police come for your children. And I wrote an excoriating email to the editorial board about this because I was like, you don't even mention the fact that there has been weeks of bomb threats against this school district. Like, you just like make it out to be like these kids are the victim of some like overly zealous, like where like this like kid was probably horrifically bullied 
that was like the first indication to me, like, this is seriously escalating. And then by mm-hmm. June of last year, we started seeing literal neo-Nazis outside, but also Proud Boys, all these folks outside of Pride events and like death threats, bomb threats. We got the bomb threats against Boston Children's Hospital. I've been tracking like just numbers of schools that every time they have like an LGBTQ book or they have some kind of LGBTQ event or something, like just get littered with bomb threats. And I've just been seeing this smoldering in the background and no one is taking this seriously. And so now that they've kind of like built this model up, right, where they can like direct their rage towards particular targets with immense threats of violence, now they've realized they can go after bigger targets. It's not just a small mm-hmm. school in a rural Wisconsin. It's not just, you know, I mean, I would say Boston Children's and it was probably a pretty big target, but it's now they realize they can go after an entire like giant corporation, right? And mm-hmm. like Target, I can understand their concern for the like, safety of their employees because they have unhinged people sending all kinds of death threats and bomb threats. But at the same time, like if you appease these people, like you're never actually going to satisfy them and they're only going to be emboldened. And so I think that's what worries me. I mean, we also have already had the club Q shooting and I am absolutely terrified for pride that Mm -hmm. something bad is going to happen. I see this, the, just the level of rhetoric online, the like Mm -hmm. open incitement of violence and yeah, mm-hmm. this is not a recipe for a healthy society. I mean, it's interesting. So my husband and I and our son, we live in a suburban New Jersey town. And you would think that we're very far removed from some of these issues. But we have a pride celebration next week. And there was just a controversy over the drag performer with some people in the town saying this drag performer was a pedophile. So even here in my town, we're having this kind of backlash and this kind of craziness. And, you know, we moved here from Manhattan. We moved here thinking, you know, this is a pretty progressive, tolerant, inclusive town. And it has been for the most part. But then we just have had this controversy. But let me play devil's advocate just to kind of address some of the issues that are being raised by some opponents of trans rights, because I think, you know, it is important to sort of win over that sort of middle median voter in a way. Let's turn to the issue of sports, which I think, you know, admittedly has been used in sort of a wedge issue way. But let's have that conversation. Let's talk about that. Like, what would you say to people who generally are supportive of the right of people to transition or to receive gender affirming care? But do say, look, if we're going to have such a thing as girls sports or women's sports, we can't allow trans girls or women to participate if they have certain physical advantages that don't make for a level playing field. So I always try to frame this like this is what I call like a gateway issue, right? Like this is an issue that people raise when they typically oftentimes don't care about women's sports otherwise. (laughs) <laughs> like, they don't care about the WNBA. They don't care about Brittany Griner. They're the same people, like, denigrating Brittany Griner. They don't fundamentally care about women's sports, right? That This is, like, an issue that's used because it's a zero-sum issue, right? It's, like, someone wins, someone loses in sports, right? And so that's why this was a kind of perfect issue, kind of kickstart this moral panic around trans people. But, like, this isn't new. Renee Richards was a trans woman competing in tennis in the 1970s, and she was actually outed by Tucker Carlson's father. Huh. So to tie this all together, like, again, I try to tell when you know the history, it's like, it's insane, like, how much this is like, it's just history. It's not repeating, but it is rhyming. And it's just interesting to me, like, how society seemed to be more tolerant of, like, Renee Richards in the 70s sometimes than, like, Leah Thomas in the 2020s. But this idea of like around women's sports has always been complicated. In the 1960s, when they kind of knew, first learned about like sex chromosomes, they started doing chromosomal testing. Well, it turns out there are a lot of intersex women that have like XY, but that either have androgen sensitivity, so they developed as phenotypically female, or they have, you know, like variety of different like intersex characteristics. And like they otherwise born, raised, like, as women. And then they get to the Olympics or something else, and they're like, oh, by the way, you're like, excellent. Like, there was a story where this woman's, like, life was actually absolutely destroyed. Her fiancé, like, left her. Like, she was stripped of all her titles, everything. And, like, because, like, this, like, try to, like, identify and, like, categorize women for competitive reasons for sports. Like, they've been struggling with this for decades, right? And they moved away from chromosomal testing because they realized that was just too broad. And they moved towards, like, testosterone levels, which, like, is a roughly okay proxy, but it's not always determinative. And so that's what they moved to. And that's essentially the regime that had been in place up until basically last year, where they like 
would allow like trans women, but also like intersex folks, like just as long as you kept like testosterone levels down. And for the most part, like it really depends on the particular sport, but generally most trans women after a year or two of like testosterone suppression and hormones, like tend to be relatively within the same parameters as cis women for competition. So I think there's this like a lot of disinformation, a lot of like moral panic reasons. And like, do I think like there should be some sensible things like, yes, requiring like going through hormone therapy? Absolutely. But there are other areas where like, this has nothing to do with it. Like I remember when Amy Schneider was winning in Jeopardy, people were like, she's winning because she's actually was like a side male birth and she can hit the button faster. And I was like, they've had women <laughs> and men competing on Jeopardy for like, you know, and it quickly devolves into this like, sexist view right and so like obviously like we can have like sensible limits around hormones and like that are determined mm -hmm. by science like okay what's the level that gets like the average like you know but at the same time like this is such so rare right yeah like they're still like picking on like Le leah thomas because like she's literally like one of the only examples that they can point to because this just yeah. isn't happening and mm -hmm. even then like like she was like oh they're like they would say oh she broke a record right and it was just like they used the ignorance of like what swimming competitions are like so there's pool records there are like meat records and there are like so there's like a ton of like records right and she was competing in the ivies not very competitive mm. division sure. and so when you compare her to like actual like top swimmers she was like not the top but, but like even before she transitioned she was like one of the top swimmers like there was kind of a lie where like Oh, she wasn't ranking before she transitioned. She was actually had already started hormones. So she had, like her ranking had dropped when she first started. So that's a lot of gate, all of the stuff around the Thomas. Mm -hmm. But sure. it really is like a gateway thing. And I think there are ways that we can have sensible conversations about this because I think, you know, a lot of it is like, why shouldn't trans girls be able to compete? Because like if they're on hormone therapies, they will never mm -hmm. be able to compete on the men's side. And also yeah. like it's also humiliating, like especially mm -hmm. in certain sports, like why shouldn't be able to enjoy like competing in sports? Like if we mm -hmm. could come up with some kind of like inclusion and fairness, like, yeah, but I think this has been lost in the weeds. Mm. These are really interesting points. And I think your views here are actually very nuanced. And I think probably there are a lot of caricatures out there. But let me turn to one more issue before we go to our little speed round of final questions. And this is, again, another issue that I think defenders of trans rights would say is being exploited politically. But again, let's talk about it because I think we have to figure out, I think, how to sort of meet the adversary on the field of battle. So your history about gender affirming care is so interesting. I had no idea how long this had been going on. And I think it does relate to this debate because a lot of people say, oh, we don't know all the risks, but well, maybe we know more than we think if we've been doing this for this long. But how would you respond to someone who says, look, I support the right of adults to get gender-affirming care, but I'm very concerned about whether children or teens are getting this care too hastily, without adequate evaluation, or without an understanding of possible risks to them later on. So how would you address the issue of gender-affirming care and kids and teens? Absolutely no one is getting rushed through this process. Like when I was transitioning, great, I was an adult. I was on a waiting list for surgery for over a year. It took me like two and a half years. And one of my surgeries, like they didn't cover it. It took me three years of fighting and I'm an attorney, right? Like working <laughs> and like to get the insurance company to cover it. And now like some of the top surgeons, like they have wait lists like two, three, four years long. Wow. And like to get in to see a therapist, to then get in, like, like there's just waitlists. Like if you were like dead set, like let's just say you're like, I want to speed run transition. Like it's going to take you months to get in to even get hormones. And that's if you go into a place that's probably more informed consent, like most places aren't, they still require like therapist letters. That means you have to go in and see a therapist who then like has to evaluate you. And then you have to get hormones. And then from there, like go to like, get a consult with a surgeon. And sometimes like surgeons, like it could take like a year or two years, and especially post COVID, like the wait list just exploded. Like, and not just wait list, like primary care. Like when I was at Mount Sinai, it, I used to be able to see my primary care, like every, like I could get in and see them within a week or two if I needed an appointment. Mm -hmm. By time like COVID was ending and I left New York at the end of 2021, it was like three months. And even here wow. at Mass General, 
it takes like three to six months for me to get in. I ended up wow. switching primary care providers. And that's just primary care. Like we're not even talking like surgeons or anything else. So wow, like it's so divorced, like this idea, like there's just being rushed. And like, if you talk to the parents of trans kids, like this is not the case at all. Like there's very intense conversations. I've talked to a lot of the, and worked with a lot of the surgeons and providers and doctors and nurse practitioners and others that like have done this care. And like, it is absolutely not the case. I think even like, you know, I think a lot of people, the far right has like turned like Chloe Cole into kind of the new Norma McCorvey. If people don't know who Norma McCorvey is, she's Jane Roe from Roe v. Wade. Yep. And who later came out against abortion, but then on deathbed confession said that like she was actually just doing it for monetary support from the far right. But anyways, so like even with Chloe Cole, like when I, you know, looking through the factual record that she like alleged in her lawsuit, she said like she first started realizing she was trans when she was like nine. And then she didn't even get her first appointment until she was like 12. And then didn't even like start anything for six months and was going to therapy. But then like, you know, said that wasn't sufficient. And like, then if you look like therapy is insufficient everywhere. Like I, my provider at Mount Sinai, right? I could go there for endocrinology, neurology, like all of the different specialties that had, like it was covered, right? Even psychiatry, if I wanted to get like my Adderall covered, I take for ADHD, they'll cover it. But if I want to go for therapy, my insurance was not contracted. So I couldn't mm. go there. So I had to go to like another one. And like, part of it is like mental health care in this country is a disgrace, right? But even then, like, she like had her first appointment at 12 and she ended up having tough surgery at 15. So you're talking about like six years from like when she mm-hmm. first like started coming out in three years, like there is no rush, right? That like these people are trying to make it out to be. And like, additionally, like just like transports, this is a, such a small population. Like even the Reuters report shows about 4,000 kids nationwide had gotten puberty blockers. 16,000 had gotten cross-sex hormones, which at that point is usually like 14 or usually more likely 16. And so 16,000 kids nationwide out of like 70 million minors in this country. Like that is an astronomically small number compared to the overall population. And so it's just like they're making it seem like it's so common when it's not. It's incredibly rare and even Louisiana did a comprehensive report through Medicaid that was released a few weeks ago. And it showed, I think it was like 50 kids in the entire state out of wow. like 800,000 recipients of Medicaid had gotten like care. And like, I think of like 2021, like, I think it was like 400 something were like diagnosed at all with gender dysphoria and only like 50 got any medical intervention. So it's like, mm-hmm. this is such a incredibly small number of kids. So like, I think there's a moral panic. There's like absolutely fear mongering on all levels. And so, you know, a lot of it is just, it's a propaganda campaign. And I think in a lot of ways, some very wealthy, powerful people figured that they could make trans people the kind of scapegoat issue to galvanize the base. And the weird thing about it, and one thing is I always try to tell people, for better or for worse, people don't care about trans folks. Like the vast majority, right? Like there's like the LGBTQ community, our allies, and then there's like the hate groups, right? And everyone else kind of in the middle is like, I'm too busy living my life. Like, I just want to have a beer when I get home from like <laughs> my job. And I try to tell people, it's not great when you're addressing disparities, right? When you're trying to get protections and try to like stop like, you know, disparities in, in healthcare and housing and employment, all these things. It's hard because people don't care. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, these hate campaigns like are not electorally successful because people don't care. Like they spent mm. tens of millions. American Principles Project spent like 50 million. They advertised this heavily in Wisconsin, in Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and they lost like in all mm. these swing states. And as animated as this is, like it is such a tiny shrieking minority that mm-hmm. is like pushing these hateful bills. And they're able to get successful among the Republicans because they're so homogenous and they're like in this echo chamber. But it doesn't like play with middle America. It just doesn't mm. because they're like, I don't care. They're like, I have issues <laughs> like, you know, dealing with like inflation or dealing yeah. with like, you know, putting food on the table or like all of these like very real kitchen table issues. Wow. Yeah, no, and I refer people to your Twitter feed and your writings if they want to inform themselves more because I think there is a lot of incorrect information out there. But let me proceed to the final four questions. These yep. are the same questions I ask all of my guests. My first is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as 
that abstract system of governance? I'd say the work-life balance. Yeah. Not necessarily for me, but for other folks, because I see what it's done to people. Question two, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I think I would have gone into medicine. I think I would have been a doctor. Not a musician? Potentially. Yeah, that could have okay. been it. Okay. <laughs> although, you know, although some people have career changes. That was, oh my gosh, Ken is from Hangovers, like on, I think, America's Got Talent, like the Asian comedian. He was a doctor, and then he <laughs> decided to do comedy. So you're not always wedded to one career. That is true, and it's a good lesson for people to remember. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Oh, I always make sure I get good sleep. I get like seven, eight hours. Oh, great. <laughs> and I've actually been heartened by how many of my guests do get decent sleep. And my last question is, any final words of wisdom, either career advice or life advice for my listeners? Yeah, I think especially for law students, I think right now, like, you know, I hear it from my own students, like, I think it's really hard to go in this profession right now, especially given like just the extreme amounts of corruption, the just like complete trashing of like jurisprudence and stare decisis and just like literally what we thought of as the law as it is. And I think it's really difficult to deal with all that and move into that profession. And one of the things I tell people is like there's life, not just life outside of law school, because that's one of the things I tell my students all the time, but there's life outside the law, right? And this doesn't have to define you. This doesn't have to be everything you do. You can be just a lawyer and then also like have a wonderful family or you could be a musician or you could do like, or maybe decide like to write a script and go make movies. Like one of the showrunners for Westworld was a Harvard law grad and she decided to go do script writing instead. So, you know, there's life outside the law and, you know, you're not always like wedded to the career that you choose. Well, I think that is a very wise observation and I think it's a great note to end on. So Alejandra, thank you so much for your time and your insight today. And thank you also for all that you do for the LGBTQ community. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Alejandra for joining me. I certainly learned a great deal from speaking with her, and I'm grateful for her time, insight, and work for the LGBTQ community. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, June 14. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>